You're listening to Right Where You Are, hosted by New York Times bestselling author, creator, and speaker, Jason Wright. With inspiring guest interviews and Jason's unique lens on life, this is the place to see the good in the world, to lift and be lifted, no matter your starting point, to make a difference that matters. And we'll do it all together, right where you are. Hello, world. Welcome back to Right Where You Are. This is Jason Wright. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for making time for the show each week. I know that I thank you every week, but I probably still don't thank you enough. So thank you for for giving us time. It's the most valuable thing that you have. Uh, I'm home. It was an interesting couple of weeks on the road. um, And I'm doing this episode from my office here at home, which is terrific. I I love traveling. If you've followed me and my work through the years, you know how much I love being out talking to readers about the things that I'm writing and the people that I'm meeting. Uh, But there is nothing like sleeping in your own bed. So that has been really nice the last couple of nights. Um, I hope that you have received uh, your copy of Even the Dog Knows, the new novel. I hope you're enjoying it. If you finished it and you enjoyed it, I hope that you'll take a moment to share uh, your experience with the book on social media. You can leave a book, uh, a review of the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Desert Book, wherever you purchase the book. Uh, Retailers, online retailers and authors love reviews. Even if you didn't love the book, um, I was reading a review, a three three out of five star review a couple nights ago. Um, it was a little bit critical, and I thought that's okay. You know what? I don't like everything that I read either. So uh, authors always appreciate honest reviews. Okay, today's guest is someone that I I had not even met, didn't even know this person was on the planet six months ago, uh, but we have forged a friendship, and he is just such a a good man. I was telling my wife Cody. Uh, just last night, a story about today's guest and a conversation that I had with today's guest on one of our early phone calls months ago. And I won't embarrass him by giving too many details, but the story just demonstrated how there are few people in the world today that have hearts as pure and good as today's guest. He is with Family Search, and he'll talk about exactly what that is in a minute. He manages the marketing efforts of four this family history giant uh, in Europe and North America. And the job for today's guest has become sort of the perfect marriage of his two greatest passions, family history and marketing. His career began at Ancestry in the 1990s. Uh, Ancestry, of course, is another of the, the largest, most successful players in this industry. And he has been at some other startups as well before coming to Family Search uh, just over 10 years ago. He is married. His wife's name is Kelly. They have five children. And his name, of course, my friend, is Jim Erickson. And we're thrilled that he is with us today. Hello, Jim. Hello. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Jason, for the invitation to to be here with you today. Well, I'm excited that we've been talking about this for a little while. And of course, you've had a little something else on your radar uh, with something called Roots Tech, which maybe some of our listeners are, are familiar with. So first, just a little bit of background and maybe a disclosure. I also love family history and marketing and obviously writing specifically, as my listeners know. And uh, I have been doing some freelance writing for Family Search. That's how Jim and I met. But to be clear, Family Search is not sponsoring this interview or this episode. It wasn't even Jim's idea. It was my idea. So I'm uh, I'm excited to have an opportunity to dive into something that has become important to me, both personally and professionally, in particular over the last six months. So, Jim, some in the audience today are probably familiar with Family Search and what it does and who you are, and others, I'm sure, are not. 
And so I want from you the classic elevator pitch. I mean, you're a marketing guru, so you know what that is. Let's hear it. What, what is Family Search? Family Search is where you can come and learn about who you are as you discover your family. I think that's the simplest way to put it. We define ourselves through our relationships with others. And our relationship with family is one of those relationships that is most important in defining who we are as a person. Um, those relationships include, you know, for teenagers, relationships with friends is really important and schoolmates. And that's where bullying comes in and some of those issues. Um, those of us of faith, um, our relationship with God is really paramount. Um, but our family relationships are those relationships that, that define us, um, even through generations that we do not know. And that's where family history comes in, to learn those stories and those experiences, the values, the, 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 the memories that get passed down from generation to generation to help us know who we are and how we got to the point where we started and where we are today. Mm, we could probably wrap it up right there. <laughs> That's a great that is a great um, elevator answer. I love that. Um, I I have been trying to get my my two youngest, uh, my teenagers at home, still uh, more interested in family history and kind of understanding it. And I this was earlier during COVID, but I remember sort of on a Sunday afternoon saying, "Look, family history is every single time." that we sit down in the living room or at the dinner table or in the car and someone says, do you remember that trip to Corolla, North Carolina, where so-and-so child ate pizza and got sick and we all laughed and we went and watched the sunrise at 530 in the morning? Any Anytime you are talking about researching, capturing, sharing in the car at the dinner table in the living room, a bit of history from your family. That's that's family history. We sometimes, maybe we overcomplicate it by thinking about the history of this kind of industry. And we'll talk about that with my next question, but it's, it's not that complex, is it, Jim? No, no. Family history is what happens every moment of our lives. Um, it's our individual story. It's uh, who we are. And, and it's really interesting going back to the, the concept of relationships that define us. I think we all want to hold claim to relationships that make us look good and feel good mm -hmm. and uh, tend to want to distance ourselves from those relationships that, that may be more uncomfortable. So I think, I think a big part of family history is putting context around the experiences that we've had, um, which can lead to healing, which can lead to understanding, not just for ourselves, but also for those with whom we might have difficult relationships. But I, I think, you know, going back to what you were just saying, yeah, every day, every experience we have is part of family history. It's those memories that we have. It's those things that we learn that uh, make us who we are. So when, when I was young and um, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, which probably some of my listeners are aware of that, um, I, I remember the occasional Sunday when my mom, usually my mom, sometimes my dad would say, hey, we're, I'm going to be just a minute. 
I'm going to go into the, the genealogy library at our church, and I'm, I need to do some research for a minute. And in the case of our, um, of our church there, it was, it was a, basically a closet. It was so tiny. And I don't know how, I mean, it looked like someone's crawl space in their home. There was a light and there were three microfish readers in a filing cabinet, just full of microfish, right? And I, I would peek in and say, how much longer, how much longer? Maybe someone listening can kind of relate to this, but I can still see so clearly in my mind, my mom sitting there with these little, uh, maybe you can describe better than I can what those were, right? The way we used to do genealogy research, but um, we don't call it that anymore. It doesn't look like that anymore. I think I have moved on from the PTSD of watching my mother do this for hours and hours and hours on a, you know, on this reader, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, a, in this dark space. So what, what changed? How has it changed? We, I, and we don't even call it genealogy work anymore as much, do we? No, that, that change took place uh, really in the early 80s, where we moved from genealogy or the study of our genes and where we came from, kind of think of a, a horse pedigree, um, to family history. Um, are the stories, the, the experiences that make us who we are. Um, I think family history is a lot more accessible. Um, there might be a time where we talk about family discovery or, or you know, other aspects of family history. Um, because, again, it, it's bringing the history to the present is a big, a big part of it. So going back to what you're talking about, I had similar experiences. Um, but growing up in Salt Lake, my experiences were at the old uh, family history library when it was part of the church office building. Um, going with my mom. I'm watching her use the microfilm readers and uh, looking at microfiche as well. But um, there was this sense of, of grave importance, I'll put it that way, um, when my mom was doing it, um, because she grew up in a family where they didn't talk much about her family history, especially on her mom's side. Hmm. So I felt like I was doing something really important when she would load up a machine and say, now, just look for the McFarlands or just look for the Worleys or just look for this name. And, uh, and it made me feel a little bit like a detective. Hmm. And I think that's one of the things that, that people who really, uh, you know, they, they call it catching the bug, getting the genealogy bug um, or the family history bug. Um, you start feeling like you're, you're putting it together a puzzle or you're doing detective work or you're finding something that's really important because it's what, what made you who you are. That's so interesting. And, and folks, I said in my introduction that you were about to meet someone who has a, a good and pure heart. And didn't we just witness that? Because me, Jim, look at the difference between the two of us at the same age in the same rough situation. I was like, mom, can we please go home? I want a pop tart and some tang. I just want to get, I want to go home and be back, you know, in my, the comfortable world of, you know, of my bedroom doing whatever I might've been doing at that age. And there you were dutifully and reverently watching your mom and assisting your mom. See, Jim, that that's why you're the kind of guy that we should all want to be like. Oh, you're far too kind. I'm sure I wanted to leave after about 10 minutes as well. Jason. Oh, well, I, I didn't make it past the two minute mark, but no, I, I, uh, my mom, by the way, is still 
still very passionate about this. And, and um, on both sides of my family, there are, in every family, I'm sure there are people listening that can relate to this. You, you think, well, there's nothing else to be done because aunt so-and-so has done it all or uncle so-and-so has done all the work and it's all there. And, and um, my experience having served in some leadership positions in the church and, and tried to inspire people to get more involved. There's, there is, it's never all done. It's just not, um, there's always, there's always more that can be done. So um, recently, well, first of all, let me ask you this, because I, I, I think someone might be listening and thinking, what's the difference between what you do and what all of these DNA um, companies do online, like 23andMe and all that. So how are you different? Because you don't provide those kinds of services. No, we really focus on relationships that are in the family tree. So DNA is wonderful to uh, answer questions. It can be used to triangulate who possible ancestors are um, and uh, answer a lot of mysteries, even, you know, what homelands did I come from, things like that. Um, We focus on what we can show based on records and evidence. Um, that, that's one of the things that, that genealogists have been using forever is uh, documentation. Um, documentation can include, uh, you know, what's written in a family Bible, that it can include lore that's passed down. In some cultures, oral family history is the main record that they use. Um, other cultures, it's uh, patrilineal lines, uh, just, you know, who and so we got who and so um, just for the, the fathers and the sons. Um, but I, I think um, we tend to focus more on the stories and the records and leave the DNA to those who um, focus more on the scientific approach. Mm-hmm. And again, more on the genes of genealogy as opposed to the family history and more the story of how I got here from a, a recorded history perspective. Now, there has been a, a huge increase, I think, in interest here where, and you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that it, family history and that the data has become so much more accessible to us, um, you know, from the, the closets and church buildings to, you know, today to your your device in your hand, not even a computer. You can do so much of it just right on your, you know, your smartphone or whatever. Do you, do you have a sense of why there has been this increased interest? I mean, there's a show on television for Pete's sake called relative race that helps people connect, um, you know, to, to long lost relatives. And um, again, it's more probably on the, the DNA side. Those are probably some of the tools that they use, but ultimately it's about the stories of people reconnecting with, um, you know, family members whose stories they've never heard. Do you, do you have a sense? Does the team at Family Search talk about that? Like, why has there been maybe the surge of the last decade or so of interest in this world? Yeah, there, there's been a lot of, uh, I think we all have a desire to do two things. One is to belong. Um, it's not enough just to fit in. Um, if you're familiar with the, the Brene Brown and some of what she's learned and shares along the way, she talks about the difference of fitting in versus belonging. And I think family history gives us a sense of belonging, that as you're doing research, this is, these are my people. Um, a big driver, um, you brought up relative race, and a lot of the, the shows has been to, uh, to heal 
and to find lost relationships, um, either lost because of adoption or lost because of family trauma, things like that. And I think we as, as media consumers love those stories. We love to know that people are going to be okay and that they, they found their place in the world. And I think that's what we're all trying to do is find where we belong. And, and family history helps us with that. The second thing is to get a feeling of connection, to feel like you're connecting with people. And that is, I think, a response to a lot of the societal shifts that we've had, where we're more mobile than we've been. Um, a lot of the relationships that we have um, are now virtual as opposed to with people that are right around us that we can talk to. And I think we long for meaningful connection. And uh, one of the things that, that I find really compelling, um, you talked about DNA. It's also totally accessible through our family tree because we are connecting everybody together, is to find living people um, that you're connected to. Um, you know, if you're traveling and you're going to, um, I took a, a trip to England a couple of years ago. I was really curious to know if there were people that were still in Chorley, England, that would be my relatives. Um, and uh, I didn't have time to figure it out before I went, but it was great to reconnect with the things that my ancestors saw. And it would have been really fun to connect with a fifth or a sixth cousin while I was there and just talk and just see, you know, how their experience is different from mine, but also to, to have that feeling of connection. And I think those are the two things that, that really drive people getting involved is wanting to belong, wanting to know their place in the world, and then wanting to feel that there are people like them or people that should care about them because they're related. Yeah. Very, very well said. Um, it's the, Particularly, I was struck by this idea that as more of our relationships, and I can certainly relate to this personally, as they become virtual and, and digital, some of that may be exasperated by COVID and, and the just the all of the distancing that's kind of become part of the norm. Um, I mean, I'd prefer to be doing this face to face. And here we are, you know, using technology to connect across a couple of thousand miles. It it does feel like we're looking for every available opportunity to make a, a real connection to someone, even if those connections are also virtual, we just, it's easy to feel alone and a little bit invisible in the world. Um, and, and this gives us an opportunity to, to connect. And that, that sort of gets us to the real reason that we're chatting today. This is the most exciting thing happening in the world of family history right now. It's what I have been doing some, some writing on and research on, and I've just fallen in love with the whole notion behind what's coming. And it's not about 2022, it's about 1950. So Jim Erickson, tell us what is coming up in just a few weeks around family search, the world you work in, and the year 1950. The world is changing. Um, we are going back to 1950. <laughs> so every 10 years in the United States, um, we answer a bunch of questions as part of the census. Those records, um, according to law, are protected for 72 years um, because of privacy and other reasons. And uh, so this year, 
2022, it's 72 years since the 1950 census was taken. It started on April 1st, 1950. So on April 1st, 2022, the National Archives and the Census Bureau are releasing the 1950 census. It's going to be released and made available on their website and also made available for free download. Um, so all of the other family history websites can go and, and share the same data. Um, so that is happening on April 1st. We're excited about it. We're going to be downloading and uploading those records, um, those images of the census. Those will be available on Family Search as quickly as we can get them uploaded. Um, but at that point, they're going to be browsable on Family Search. Um, National Archives, they're doing a little bit of an automated index to be able to find names when it releases um, using uh, computer. Um, aided indexing. Um, we are working with Ancestry, and Ancestry is going to be doing that same process, but they have to get the images first. Mm -hmm. And so they have to download the images. They're going to be running um, their um, handwriting uh, recognition technology against it and artificial intelligence to identify the names, and not just the names, but all of the other fields. And so we're doing an every field index. Then they're going to be sharing that those indexes with us. And we're going to make those available on Family Search for people to come in and review them and make sure that automated index is, is as accurate as possible. And then enhancing it or fixing anything that we find that the computer got wrong because we know that with automation and computers, it's not going to be 100%. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, some of these fields, like, like the address is written vertically at the edge of the page. So this is going to be hard work for a computer. We know that we need people to come in and review it. So that's what we're launching. And it'll, it'll probably be um, within about a week um, that this project will fully be available. We'll have things to do, though, within two or three days. Um, we've just launched at RootsTech a new experience called Get Involved. And Get Involved is something that allows people to just review names. And uh, we'll be launching that as soon as we get those first indexes. Um, it'll also be launched in the new mobile app um, that's available right now. There's a project that, that's U.S. Wills and Deeds that's being done with the new Get Involved app. So you can put it on your phone. And it is super simple and it's really fun to just look at a name and look at what it was indexed as by a computer and say, is it right or fix it? And you move on. And it's a fun activity and uh, it's really rewarding to, to see that you're making a difference by making these records available. 1950 census will be even easier because the handwriting will be more familiar to us. Um, and it's really exciting to see just how all of these innovations, uh, you know, I was, I was around when most of the family history that people were doing was still microfilm, and then it moved to CD-ROM, and then at Ancestry, we, we moved it online. And it's just kind of neat to see the ongoing evolution of the technology that makes it not just more accessible, but accessible more easily and more quickly than ever before. 
And that's where all these innovations with indexing have made a, a big difference. And now to not transcribe, but to actually start with an index that's been created that we can review, um, that's just a, a, a time saver. Um, it, it's going to be, and then once it's published, now the model on most websites, including Family Search, is if you see something wrong, you can still come and fix it. So the next person has an easier time finding it. So it's just a, it's a continuous improvement of the data. Um, so it's not as, I mean, it's still important that we do the best we can prior to publication, but now we have the tools and the ability to continue to improve it over time, which is just a huge blessing for anybody who's having a hard time finding their family. If they can't find it today, they might find it tomorrow. And it might be that it was already there yesterday, but somebody's come and they they found it and they made it more uh, easier to find for the next person. So anyway, this is exciting. Um, a lot of people are like, why is everybody excited? These are people that a lot of people knew. Why is the 1950 census that exciting? Um, especially if you've been doing research, right? You're, you're back in the 1700s, 1600s trying to find people. But for a lot of people, um, they don't even know their the names of their four grandparents. Um, they can't even name their grandparents. Yeah. Um, so something that's really recent can actually answer a lot of questions for people and bring people in who might be thinking, oh, I wonder where grandma was living at that time, or I wonder where my parents were. Um, because a lot of that, that recent history isn't as well known as we would think. My own father, I don't know where he was in 1950. I don't know if he was in Salt Lake. He had a stint in the military. He was um, in 1950 when the census was taken. He was 20 years old. He dropped out of college. He'd gone to the University of Utah um, for, I think, part of a year. Um, realized he wasn't going to start on the football team that year. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he met his future wife down at the University of Utah USC football game in California. She was an ice skater. He got married in December of 1951 and was in Salt Lake. But in 1950, I don't know. He was either in Salt Lake City or San Francisco, I think. And it would be just interesting to see where he was and what he was doing. Um, during those uh, wandering years that he had. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of people like me that you think you know everything there is to know about your family. And then you say, okay, well, what about 1950? Where were they? What were they doing then? And all of a sudden you realize that you may not know everything that you thought you knew. Yeah, just kind of a, a snapshot in time. You know, if you could just kind of freeze history and look at at the, you know, what that um, what did that morning look like? What you know, I, I wrote a piece um, which I think will be up on the blog fairly soon on finding my father in the census because he would have been um, he will he will be 13 years old in 1950. And it's exciting to me to think that I can find a, a record where uh, the enumerator sat and interviewed and maybe my dad was in the room or, you know, maybe he was coming in and out or, or walking through for a snack or whatever, but you're, you're capturing the real time recording of that data 
from someone sitting in the living room of your ancestors or, um, you know, we're, we've also done some research on some of the famous people that might be interesting to find in the sense it's like an Elvis Presley. That'll be really interesting. I mean, that'll be, he'll be someone I'll search just, just to see where was he? How old was he in 1950? What were the family dynamics looking like? He had a really interesting childhood. Um, Ella Fitzgerald will be in the census. Chuck Cooper will be in the census. Uh, Jimmy Stewart, one of the all-time great, you know, uh, just American legends on screen will be in the census. Um, I I think that's interesting to just look and catch a little peek at, you know, former Hollywood stars, U.S. presidents. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of people whose names are very familiar to us. And we'll get to see that actual moment that they were counted in the census, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, their history is part of our history as well. Um, I think a lot of us, when we go and we start looking at our, our parents and grandparents will have a natural tendency to look at their neighbors and to say, you know, who is living nearby. Um, And with the 1950 census, because we're indexing every field, um, we'll be able to, to do things like say, you know, what was the most common occupation in this enumeration yeah. district? Um, where were there different uh, racial mixes in the United States at the time? Or even just the ability to, to search by age and race and some of those things will make it easier for people to find who they're interested in finding. So, so this is, you know, if, if you had to know the enumeration district and use a map, to figure out, you know, where your your family was in 1950, um, there are some great tools out there, and we're partnering with people to to make that possible. But there's no way to compete with an index where you can type in a name and the names in the index, and boom, there's your family um, looking back at you on the page. Yeah, um, millions and millions and millions of records searchable just like that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really exciting. So, Jim, if someone is is listening right now who has um, never done even a lick of family history, but they're interested, where do they go? What are the first couple of steps that you would recommend for someone listening right now that they they could go immediately? They don't have to wait. They don't have to wait until April for the 1950 data to become available. They could just start right now in this moment. Where do they go? And, and what are those first couple of steps? So if you're interested in dabbling, if you're interested in mm-hmm. just getting in and, and finding something, um, I'm going to make two recommendations. The first recommendation I would make is go to Family Search. Family Search is a free website. Um, it's operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it is a free resource for everybody. Um, and so you just go to Family Search. Right on the homepage now, there's a search that searches our historical records and our family trees. If there's a grandparent who's deceased or your parent or a great-grandparent, there's a good chance if you go and you do a search on family search, you're going to have an immediate discovery, either in a record or hopefully they're already in the family tree. If they're in the family tree, what that means is they're probably linked to other people and you might be able to see three, four, or even more generations in the family tree. People may have shared photos. They may have shared memories or stories about that person. Um, so 
so that's what I would do. Um, I, I would go and I'd go to Family Search and I'd say, "What does Family Search know about my family?" And I would start doing some searching um, because you know if you're just getting started, you know, starting by building out a family tree may not be that exciting. But once you find your family and start learning about these stories, then you can think, okay, now I can go start my family tree and, and make the connections to these people because I, I want to claim them. I want to say that these are my people. This is my family. Um, the second thing I would recommend, and this may surprise a few people, um, is to do basically the same thing on Google. Um, uh, one of the things that I do is when I meet people and I, I, I'm kind of sheepish to admit this, um, but I, I go to their family tree and how do I do it? I search for them and then I look for the keyword obituary and maybe where they're from. And if I find an obituary of a parent, it includes them as children. Sometimes it'll include them as a grandchild in an obituary and boom, I'm off to family tree and I can see what their family looked like. Um, and then I can also see if we're related. Um, but, but doing the same search on Google um, for a grandparent or a great grandparent, it's amazing how quickly you can get in and start um, making those discoveries. You don't have to be a researcher. Um, there is just so much data available now. And uh, as you start looking at those records and as you start um, just, just doing some real cursory searches, um, it's great to find the information. It's also great to see who is actually adding this information um, and, and seeing, oh, it's, it's a cousin. It's somebody I know. And uh, it gives you the opportunity to reconnect with those people who are participating as well. So those would be the two things that I would recommend. And then, yes, come to Family Search, start with yourself, build out your tree, um, but but start by seeing what's there first. I think that's a little bit more compelling. And so to, to be crystal clear, not only do you not need to be a researcher, you do not need to pay a penny. The account is free. There's no hook later for, we're talking specifically about Family Search. There are other partners out there that have paid options and they're all wonderful, but specifically familysearch.org. Um, it's free. You do not have to be a member of the church. You do not have to be a member. You don't have to be a person of faith. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. There's no, there's no test. There's no, it's just, are you interested in connecting to your family? Right? Absolutely. And there's a lot you can actually see now um, before you even create an account. So you can see we've opened up a lot of our family tree. Oh, cool. um, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And, and to see the actual records, because we have uh, organizations that we work with and we want to make sure that those records aren't, you know, taken um, mm -hmm. and used elsewhere. Um, we do require a, a sign-in, a registration. But there's a lot you can see even before you register. Um, mm -hmm. And we do that because we want to, Again, let people know what's, what's there for them to find. Awesome. And I think um, before we, we move toward the close, it's important to note that the, I, I mean, the work that Ancestry has done is your partner on this is pretty, pretty remarkable. And you really need each other, don't you? Yeah, 
So that's one of the things that you need for any industry. Um, I, I tend to think of family history more as a community than an industry, mm. but you need people who are there helping each other, but also pushing each other yeah. to innovate and to, to make these enhancements. Um, and it's great that these are commercial companies because there is, there are very few motivations that are stronger than, than a profit, than making money for people. Yeah. And so uh, Ancestry um, is a great partner in the 1950 census project that we're doing. Um, but, you know, there are other commercial players that are just wonderful and they're changing the world of family history. Um, DNA is another great example of an innovation that's changed the face of family history. Um, and, you know, if, if there was no commercial interest in it, um, we wouldn't be seeing it progress as quickly as it, as it has. So we need to be grateful that there are websites that are charging money and, mm-hmm. and that have a commercial interest in this space. Yeah. And, and those, those hard-earned resources allow even more innovation and, um, you know, because in 10 years, we're going to be getting back together to talk about the release of the 1960 census. And imagine how the tools will just look at what's happened in the last 10 years, because you were around when the 1940 census was released. Think about how much more innovation with artificial intelligence and just the it's it's actually kind of hard to even wrap your brain around what it might look like 10 years from now when these records are available. It's, it's actually pretty exciting. Let me ask you, Jim, kind of at a personal level, what have you, you, I mean, you've, you've been involved in the industry in one way or another for, for a long time. What have you learned about yourself um, or your family um, through kind of immersion in this community, in this family history community? What have you learned about yourself you didn't know? So there are oh, so so many things that I've I've learned. Um, I think one of the things that I value now more than I did before is, and, and especially my parents have both passed away, and uh, I value the stories that they shared with me as a as a child. I'm grateful that my parents knew their cousins as well as they did and that they had families that were unified and cohesive. Not everybody has that. Um, My father, uh, before he and my mom found each other, um, he'd had a a previous marriage that didn't go well. Um, But, but it's, it's, there is true power in sharing your, your values, your stories, your experiences, how you got to where you are, and passing those along to the next generation. Um, because it gives me a sense of identity um, to see the, the stories that have been shared, um, and not just by my parents, but by cousins and by nieces and nephews. When I post on my grandma Erickson, I get cousins who say, oh, we used to always stop by and see Aunt Mime. Her Ooh. first name was Jemima. Um, when we were going home to Vernal from, or going visiting grandma in Vernal from California, and we'd always stop in Salt Lake and visit with Aunt Mime because we loved her and she'd call us dearie. And, and those types of things, just to have that common experience and say, yep, these are my people. 
one of the most impactful thing that has happened to me, and it happened before my dad passed away, and I was really grateful for that, is my cousin Susan Erickson Dyer sent me a CD-ROM that had the recordings that her father had made the, the month I was born, I believe, December of 1971, of my grandparents telling their stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, to hear my grandma's voice again, mm-hmm. who had passed in 1980 or 81, and my grandpa who passed away in 1978, um, that was emotional. And that's what I'm talking about when, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit of effort to share, but what we share is so meaningful in the lives of others. My dad was shocked when I put that CD-ROM in. He said, where did you get this? Mm. So that's one of the things I've learned is the value of sharing because what you share can make other people feel that same sense of belonging when you talk about their grandmother or their cousin. Um, and, and, and we all need that. We, we need that sense of connection. And I think a lot of times we, we look at it as a consumption, you know, give me everything you know about my family. I want this. Um, so one of the things I've learned is the power and the gratitude that's expressed when you share. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough just to come and, and, and take what everybody else knows about your family. Um, what you know and the experiences you've had, even if they're difficult, um, can be a source of knowledge and healing for other people. So that, that I think that's the most valuable lesson um, that I continue to learn. Hmm. I love that. I Just the idea that the stories um, of our families can, can bridge generations and death and can, you know, provide healing and hope. I was telling my kids recently, I was reading in one of my dad's uh, journals, an experience from um, many years ago when he was in California. And I had was unaware of this until I'd read it in his own handwriting, but he, he was uh, serving a mission in California and uh, for the church and he and his companion in sort of unusual circumstances, this would not happen today, obviously, were asked if they could deliver a body um, of a church member who had passed away several hours to the South. And so he wrote about picking up a body and putting it in the car. Like it was just the most normal thing in the world. Cause they were, had been given an assignment and they had to deliver, you know, the sweet deceased brother, um, several hours to the South, <laughs> South for a service. And, and, uh, my kids jaws were just like hanging open. They're like, what in the world? And, I said, yeah, that's this is this is family history, kids. This is this is uh this is what we do, why we do it. All right. Well, before we get to our last two questions, a reminder to everyone that I will of course post links to all of um, the good things that Jim is doing and everything he has referenced today that will all be in the show notes where you can just tap, click, go and and do. So uh, Jim, the name of the podcast, as you know, is right where you are, W-R-I-G-H-T. I love asking the guests on the show what that title, what that phrase means to them. What does right where you are mean to a guy like Jim Erickson? Um, it's interesting. Um, I hadn't thought of this um, before, 
But because we've been talking about the 1950 census, I, I love the idea of a snapshot. I love the idea of capturing a moment in time. I love the idea of knowing that this moment won't happen again and being able to say that, you know, I'm on a, a journey and this is where I'm at right now. But in three or four years, I hope that I'm somebody better than where I am right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I think that there is great joy to be found in connecting with the moments in our lives. And I, I hope that your listeners, um, you know, as they're listening to this or as they're thinking about what they're going to do next, that they can say, how can I make this moment um, so it's meaningful? And how can I make the most out of every moment? Because that, that, that's life. I, I wrote my eight-year-old journal. I said, and I was quoting my mom because I said, mom, I have nothing to write in my journal. And I said, all I can write is little dumb things. And I put in my journal, mom says that life is made of little dumb things. And, uh, and I, I think that's actually profound, um, that life is just a series of moments. And it's up to us to, to find joy um, and to, to, to connect with people on an ongoing basis. Hmm. Oh, I love your mom. And to take, those, um, to take those little dumb moments and to string them together into you know, something beautiful and, and meaningful. Well, Jim, years from now, uh, long after uh, this podcast and the 1950 census and this, you know, this discussion will just be a distant memory for most people. If you could pick the one thing that you would most want people to remember about you and your journey, what would it be? What What is Jim Erickson's one thing? Um, so... The one thing that I would want people to remember is that I was kind. Um, I, I, I think that kindness allows us to point people towards God and to our Savior. Um, I think in the end, when I think of those who've gone before, um, yeah, I have some specific memories but there's nothing so profound as the feeling that I had when I was with them and being able to rekindle that, that feeling. And I hope that, you know, long after I'm gone, people will remember the, the wonderful feeling that we had when we were able to spend time together, because I think that that's really where um, I, 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 don't think there's any accomplishment as important to leaving people feeling better than they did before they, you had time to, to spend with them. Hmm. Well, amen to that. And I can add a, a witness that that is the kind of life you're living because I do feel uh, better when I'm around you and have a chance to interact with you. So I, I appreciate and admire that you very much practice what you preach. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today, folks. Um, as we say goodbye, I remind you again, it's so helpful if you take a minute to, to rate and review the show on uh, Audible, Spotify, Apple, 
iHeartRadio, wherever you catch your favorite podcasts. It's helpful as we grow our little family here at Right Where You Are. Jim Erickson, thank you again for giving me uh, some time and the audience time in the show today. You are you are a good, good man. Thank you, Jason. You are as well. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Right Where You Are. For more information about Jason and his projects, visit him online at jasonfright.com or on social media at facebook.com slash jfwbooks or on Instagram at jasonfright. And be sure to subscribe to Right Where You Are wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Right Media Productions. Copyright 2021 by Jason F. Wright. All rights reserved.